It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. I definitely say what's on my mind, and I don't live with any regret. Radio and TV broadcasting is just in my blood. I'm a Tebow. This is my DNA. And this is the Jennifer Tebow Show. And me, I'm Jennifer Tebow. Hello, 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 everyone, and good morning, I should say. It is 6 a.m. Central Time, bright and early. Today is Monday, July 11th, 2011. I am Jennifer Tebow, and yes, this is the Jennifer Tebow Show. So very glad to be back in the saddle. That's a that's a Texas term, by the way, uh, back in the saddle. Now, Many of you know, and if you didn't know, I mean, you look at the last name and you go, okay, she is definitely not um, a Texan by virtue of the name. Um, I was born in Louisiana. That's a very much a French name. But I grew up, for the most part, in Texas. So when you hear me come up with these terms, you know, I always rebel. I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm Creole from Louisiana, and that's where my roots are. I know I don't really sound like it for most of the words I say. Some I will uh, sound like that. But I have all these terms, like the best words uh, that I can use to gather people together, that term. I say lasso. I mean, what other word is there but to lasso things? And so I just have to laugh at myself for these these uh, the strong Texas influence that I have because, you know, and this absolutely is what it is. Well, welcome everyone to the show. We are, of course, doing a simulcast for the show today. We are broadcasting live on Blog Talk Radio, as well as feverishly broadcasting live via Ustream.tv. So if you are listening in on the Internet, but you do want to dial in to make a comment, you can dial in to the Blog Talk Radio Show at 347-637-1837. Again, that's 347-637-1837. I always tell people that if you are interested and if you start listening to the show online, because it's 6 a.m., so I know that you're getting ready for work or just for your day, and then you've got to jump in the car Definitely, definitely consider calling in to the show, 347-637-1837. You can finish listening to the show. Um, but if you wanted to watch the show and hear it at the same time, uh, you know, I don't know how interesting I am, but if you want to see what I look like this morning, uh, you can go to Ustream.tv and catch up with me there as well. Now, all of the shows that we do on Ustream uh, are going to be automatically placed in an on-demand status as soon as they're done. You can always catch up with a show or a prior show. Blog Talk Radio, all of our shows are saved on demand, all of them. I think we're up to about our 57th or 58th show by now, so that's exciting. But we are also in iTunes. So if you just have fun Googling, all you got to do is spell it correctly. Have fun Googling Jennifer Tebow. Radio. If you just do those three words, then you'll find uh, this show in multiple formats. And so welcome, welcome, welcome. I was in the midst of trying to change lighting, so I have to apologize for my Ustream TV folks who are looking at some weird psychedelic lighting. Like looks like half my he- half of my head is kind of on fire. So what a great segue, considering that I am in Dallas. And on fire. So why why would being in Dallas and on fire be an interesting top of the news information? Well, 
Miss Rihanna was in Dallas, and apparently uh, the stage caught on fire. <laughs> it's not funny. I mean, it's, it is absolutely not funny. You know, they they have so many pyrotechnics. Um, and put on really such fantastic shows. All of all of these large artists and you know, really fans have come to expect that what the ticket price that they're paying, which tickets are not cheap for these concerts, that they're going to see a show. And the fortunate and unfortunate part is that, you know, the level of lighting and pyrotechnics and all the just creative things that artists come up with, oftentimes a, a large part of that crew is going to be a local crew. And so there's a, a bit of a problem with that because that means it's like restarting relationships every single city. Now, the upside is whoever is the pyrotechnic core crew of people in a city, they usually do everybody that comes through because they're this core group. So it's not like they're some new, fresh set. But if there were any lessons learned from other cities, a lot of times that information is just not transferred to that local city crew. Um, and then there are just different dynamics, and there are just, you know, things like stuff happens, and you get power surges that you cannot predict, that you can't always protect your equipment, your staging, your artists, dancers, and all that good stuff from. And um, Rihanna had to shut down the show um, in American Airlines Center in Dallas. Uh, really scary. She sent a, a tweet to everyone saying, hey, I was having a really good time on the show. Sorry we had to end it early, but I will try to come back. Luckily, there were no injuries that were reported. Uh, the crew actually came in to quickly put out the fire. Dallas firefighters also showed up to survey the scene. It was all good except for the concert was over, so that was not quite the finale um, that everyone expected. So, you know, Rihanna was singing the song Rude Boy, so I'm sure comedians will have all kinds of jokes about it being rude and her show ended early. But, you know, hey, her specific tweet, by the way, was, Dallas, we set the stage on fire, so F-Y-A-H. Literally, she said, I'm so pissed. I was having so much fun with y'all, too. I got to come back, man. And that was Rihanna's tweet. So, you know, I mean, what can you do? It's not like you can say, well, okay, the fire's out, smoke is all around. We're going to try to sing and cough through the smoke. So hopefully the uh, fans don't revolt. You know, Dallas has a history of having ticket holders not get the uh, show that they want. So, Hopefully there's no big backlash on something that just absolutely happened. Speaking of fans, very, very sad news also occurred in Dallas. I'll stick with some local news. A uh, last This past Thursday, a fan died at a Texas Rangers game. Very, very sad. I believe it was around the sixth inning. If memory serves me correctly, looking at what the uh, scoreboard said at the time, but, you know, it was just a fly ball that um, a fan was was catching. I think the young man was, was 30 years old. And he went to catch his ball. His six-year-old son was right next to him. He leans over the rail, so you already know how this story is. Leans over the rail. He actually tips over a couple of people around, try to grab for him, but it all happened so fast. So he falls head first. And, but... I guess luckily uh, there were a bunch of obstructions in the way, so the only people that really saw how it ended, how he hit the the actual ground, were the people that were right by the rail right there where he fell because, I mean, even the announcers couldn't see it, and they first started making a couple of jokes. I know they feel so badly now. Uh, One of the announcers uh, for the game wasn't the local announcers. It was, I, I think it was for the opposing team. Uh, but then all of a sudden they realized, like, oh, this is this is serious. People aren't clapping. This person's not getting up. So apparently um, he fell over, fell straight onto his head onto concrete. The ambulance came to pick him up. Apparently he was alive when he left the the, uh, the stadium, and they said he was he was talking and moving his arms and legs. And said in the ambulance he went into full on cardiac arrest. 
And at that stage of the game, by the time he got to the hospital, he died. Oh, I mean, all for a ball. Oh, that's just so very sad. And, again, his six-year-old son was right there watching it. Um, I can imagine they somehow transported the son to the hospital waiting for other family members to come. But very, very, very sad deal. Uh, and I, I talked about this a, a little bit to, uh, you know, our friends. Now, if he were to, if you were to ask him or, or other people, many people have seen, uh, have taken some really bad spills and even died um, in these games. If you were to ask them afterwards, if you had to do all over again, would you? They'll say, no, it, it is a ball. Um, but it's indicative of our society and our culture to just, you know, really block out reality for a moment as you just zoom in on this, the possibility of catching a ball. It wasn't, you know, like it was some 3,000th hit, right? This was just a a regular ball. And um, it's just really, really sad to just, just to see um, somebody just die. Speaking of 3,000 hits, Derek Jeter hit his 3,000th hit in his career, oh, and by the way, his 3,000 and 3,000 and 3,000 um, on Saturday night. So it's really interesting. The uh, I, I guess I should necessarily should not necessarily say rap mogul. I'll say music industry mogul Jay Z was actually in attendance at the game and filmed the 3,000 hit on his own camera. Just just so happened, and he was all excited like a kid. It's so nice to see. And people, no matter what their age is, no matter what they've done in their lives, to just be tickled at some other great accomplishment. So I was really in awe watching Jay-Z be so excited. I mean, you just saw, like, the eight-year-old boy in him going, this is the greatest thing. He probably watched the, his his own replay of Derek Jeter's 3,000 hits probably, I'm sure, 20, 30 times after that game. But he was just really, really excited. So congratulations to Derek Jeter. You deserve all the excitement that comes along with the 3,000 wins. So can I get a little applause for Derek? Okay. Applause. Anytime now. Oh, I don't hear my applause. Oh, it's muted. That would be that would be the problem. <laughs> Let's try that. I'm going to try. I really want some applause for Derek. All right, that's enough applause. <laughs> so, Derek Zeter, congratulations. Uh, much, much respect. All right, so you know me. I'm always sticking my nose in places that people don't expect me to stick my nose into. And so we've got lots to talk about this morning. Hopefully I've got enough time to talk about everything I want to. I'll try to keep it brief, but you know how hard that is with me. Um, but, 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 but. The big butt. I am a member of Black Sports Professionals on LinkedIn. It's a group. I'm sure I'm missing a couple of words in that LinkedIn group, but it's it's, it's Black Sports Professionals, and we get together and have great discussions um, on that LinkedIn group. So shout out to that group. But one of the discussions, which is an age-old discussion that someone brought up again, is should we pay our players? And of course, the conversation is kind of being dredged up and a little bit more serious, I would say, of conversations than I have heard in a while. Some people, I will tell you, I will reveal to you what was said in those discussions. There were, I think, at least 40 or 50 responses. I was pretty excited to see that many responses. A majority of the people said, no, don't pay them. It would be too difficult. Um, just from when, when I just did a, a quick glance. And I was holding back my comments. Because I thought, well, I don't want to jump in. I don't want people to think, especially in that group, oh, well, she's doing this documentary. She's got some inside intel with sports professionals or athletes, owners, what have you. No, I just wanted to listen. But I will say this. So now here's here's my moment to comment. Um, And I'm going to string together um, this idea that I thought about this morning as I was uh, waking up, and believe it or not, I'm actually awake now. <laughs> um, 
I do feel that players should receive some level of revenue in college. I do feel like it is not a fair trade of simply education. And let me tell you why. Um, and, and, of course, I have, now most of the people on Ustream can see, I have my Texas A&M T-shirt on. I, I'm an Aggie. And the comments I make have nothing to do with A&M in particular. But I did attend a school uh, that had a very large football program, and they still do. And so there's some things I saw there, but there were nothing – uh, there's nothing that was out of the ordinary of what you would see on most college campuses that have some substantial sports program. So I will say that. So here is what I do know. If, the big IF, if education is the trade-off, free education is the trade-off for uh, your tuition in school, then the schools have to actually educate the athlete, Okay. So there's the other big IF. They can't lure, okay, here's one of those Texas words. They can't lure an athlete to that school, but then literally distract them enough to keep them away from their education. That was their payment was education. When that student walks out of that college, they should be educated because that was their payment. You should be forcing that payment onto those students because that's the only thing that you're paying them. Now, the schools are getting licensing and all. I mean, they're selling, they're selling the person's jersey, all of these things, you know, pictures with the athletes, all of this stuff, all this money, let alone bowl games and those things that some schools get a chance to take part in. It's attracting alumni to write very big checks for those buildings and whatnot. So that is the lure and the attraction piece of what athletes can do for a university. But why are the universities not paying them back the payment that they said was an equal and fair trade, which was education? Um, I cannot tell you the number, the countless number of athletes that have walked out of their universities and have been uneducated. Now, is it the university's fault or is it the athlete's fault? Well, obviously, I'm not going to place all the blame on the school system. I am not going to do that. Everyone is an individual and has a choice to make, just like a person who has an academic scholarship can walk in and throw it away or not, right? They have that ability. However, typically in a person on academic scholarship uh, is just quietly navigating their way. They're not necessarily making money for the schools, so but that is a different circumstance. But I will tell you just one fact. This is one of the reasons why I elected to pursue my Ph.D. even before I had my master's. I knew I wanted to get a Ph.D. was for this one fact. Between 1997 and 2002, the five-year period, the NCAA, by the way, has to report on a five-year period what you know all of their uh, numbers are, their statistics for students, for a student athlete. 1997 to 2002, there were 342 NCAA Division One schools who did not graduate, not one African American male athlete in that five-year period. I'm going to repeat that because that's a lot to digest. Between 1997 and 2002, there were 342 NCAA Division I schools that did not graduate not one African-American male student athlete. Now, that's a shame. That when I, I and when I first thought this couldn't be, and there was big uproar, and the NCAA wanted to kind of hide that information. And if you look at where their numbers are today, they're really not much better. They're really not much better. But we've you know distracted with other things. Let's you know take trophies away from players. 
uh, in, in, and from schools from years back. You know, so we're, we're getting distracted by other elements of, of student athleticism. But that's the reality. So if college education is fair payment, fair trade, then you need to, universities, you need to educate these students, and not just black students. I'm, I'm giving you that statistic because it is, it is the most alarming um, statistic uh, for a segment of the student-athlete population. It is quite alarming. You've got to educate. So then we look at what we've got today, NFL lockout, NBA lockout. And in particular, many of you know that I am in the midst, my production company is in the midst of filming a documentary calling an audible on uh, life after pro football, the financial and physical impact of football. Also, by the way, we just recently kicked off the second documentary in, in this calling series, and this is going to be about the the NBA lockout, and it is calling a technical foul. You know, you guys know I'm very creative. You're right. And so that's going to be calling a technical foul. And so that documentary is actually following the NBA lockout just to really create a a fair space for fans and the general population to really understand the insight of not just the the snippets of business that they hear, but also to hear from the voices of the players because that's important. Okay, so why did I bring this up in this uh, discussion about should athletes get paid? Many of the athletes that I have interviewed along the way and some many that I have coached always characterized that time before they got into professional sports as all of this unpaid time where they were putting their bodies on the line, where they were risking injury, all of those things, right? And so let's just pretend, and you know, Texas is a very big football state. Many young men that start to play football start around five or six years old and what's Pop Warner. And so let's pretend you start at five in Pop Warner and then you go all the way through. Eventually you get involved with your school team and then you go all the way to college. So so from five years old to let's just say twenty two years old that you're playing the entire time unpaid. And then you get drafted. You know, that's the goal. Very few do, but you get drafted at twenty two. So from five to 22, that's 17 years of of unpaid playing time, 17 years. And so what I think is happening, what I think indirectly is happening, you know, is that the players are saying, you know, once this sports life is over, I prepared my whole life for this moment. And it, it ends pretty early in my living stages. So now I've got to have enough money to almost reinvent, recreate, move on to something totally brand new, right? So I need enough money and a cushion to be able to do that because the public had me consumed with making myself a football player or a basketball player or a baseball player or whatever it is. Okay. So what I think has happened with these large salaries is that this money is in some way paying for all that unpaid time that you put in to make yourself this expert today. That's that's really what I think is the really the DNA of those large salaries. Do I agree with the large salaries? You absolutely right. I do. Uh, you absolutely right. If the average playing time in the NFL is three years, but it took you 17 to prepare for that. Unpaid, you're absolutely right. I do believe a player should make as much as they absolutely can. I do. I do. They make the system go round. They do. For both the NFL and the NBA um, in their lockouts, both sides are saying, hey, we're not profitable. We need to restructure how payments are made. Owners want more money to help them not go under. Uh, The reality for the NBA lockout is that there are about 22 teams that are in serious jeopardy. And so the word contraction has been a popular term to talk about the idea of there being fewer teams to be able to share in the pot for revenue and whatnot. So that's kind of an interesting concept 
to me, uh, the whole contraction thing. I'd hate to see any city lose an NBA team because I remember going to my very first NBA game with my dad and the excitement that it really, you know, kind of kind of welled up inside to watch the game and the spirit of competition. I think it does something for kids and makes a very positive impact. So I'd be sad to see that kind of touch go. Now, the reality is so many so many seats are so overpriced that the average child can't necessarily go see a game anymore, so that's kind of sad too. But that's the argument. So NBA, they're really looking to completely restructure the way players are getting paid, and what they're looking at doing is in a major way cutting – the top 40 players' salaries, um, about 30%, was was about the last proposal that, that I was acquainted with. And so they're basically saying, well, impact the highest paid players for the sake of saving for everybody. Um, and, of course, the highest paid players are going, oh, that's not right. Um, we worked hard to be the top players and to receive this revenue and High revenue is is really a financial trophy of sorts in the league as well. And like I've always said, I think they deserve it. I absolutely, in my heart of hearts, believe that they deserve it. So, again, should players get paid? Yes. Maybe it will create some relief on the professional playing side if payment happens in college. Heck, how many high schools make big money? Uh, from having a very strong sports program. If they didn't, why would certain players start moving around to group themselves up to be at certain schools? I'm not going to name the schools, but we all know some of the If How, how is it possible some of our greatest um, NBA players all went to the same school? Mm-hmm. Are the chances are that, that they were all born in that area? No. If it was, we would all be wanting to drink the water that they drank in that area. We'd all be wondering what was in that area. Now, recruitment is happening. It's alive, it's alive and well to be able to create these super teams because it creates a lot for the schools. Unfortunately, the athletes themselves are being told like a carrot dangling in front of them, oh, you keep doing this and, and, and you'll get a full scholarship in college. You keep doing this, and you and you just might get drafted. Um, but the reality is so many players are not getting drafted. And so, again, I go back to universities. If the payment, if the payment is education, you've got to educate the athletes. You've got to stop creating a system whereby you assign tutors that are really taking the test for the athletes. You've got to stop doing that. That is hurting those players in, in the long run. I'm sure you talk to any of those players today, today, even just five years after them being out of college, they will tell you that they were probably sorry that they participated in a system that helped to keep them uneducated. And so if this happens, I'm going to give you the story of a player. I'm not, I'm not going to name their name, but I'll give you the story of a player who um, played who played all four years in college, You know, played his freshman year, so was not redshirt, played four years in college, got drafted into the NFL, went to his NFL team, and then decided and did, was very successful, actually had some Super Bowls under his belt, decided he wanted to go back to school to finish his degree because he thought, I only have a few, probably just a few credit hours left. I, mean, I attended school for four years. So he goes back only to discover that the degree program that the school had placed them in was wildlife, parks, and recreation. Wildlife. Now, he thought he was a business economics major. Okay? So I'm going to say that again. He thought he was a business and economics major because that was the bulk of his classes. And this particular athlete, I saw his transcript. So really his classes were more geared towards business than they, I mean, maybe he took one class that was in wildlife parks and recreation. But unfortunately, because the classes that he took, not that he really picked them, someone just said, oh, yeah, we'll put you in these classes. They were they were so scattered across the map 
that none of the classes were working toward any particular degree. So while this particular person had over 100 credit hours, and you know most degree programs are about 125, 130-hour programs for an undergraduate degree. While he had over 130 hours, I mean over 100 hours, he was probably 60 to 70 hours away from graduating, any particular degree, 60 to 70. Now, if you know the math on that, that's almost three years easily. And then you factor in that he was, at the time that he pursued this, actively playing professional football, so it's not like he could go straight through, and this was not a school that had some distance education program online or anything of that nature, so he would have to physically attend if he wanted to get his degree from that school. So now we're looking at six or seven years away from graduation if he were to slowly chip away at the idea that he wanted to finish. So he gave up. He absolutely gave up and said, well, that's it. And unfortunately, he did not feel very comfortable about where he was academically to be able to stand on his own. Because guess what? Those tutors weren't there anymore. The little system that they had set up while he was there, that system was gone. He was going to be a regular student, and that idea was not very enticing to him. He had the money to pay for his degree, and the reality is many don't have the money. But he had the money to pay for his tuition, but he didn't have the the gumption, uh, I guess, or the, the courage to jump up and say, this is where I really am, nor was he interested in some long-term situation. So it was very unfortunate that he was put in that circumstance. It should have been that he should have had only one or two semesters left. That's what should have been if responsibly that school was making sure that this student was on track pursuing a program that he was interested in. I mean, he never in, in his wildest, and no pun intended, wildest dreams would have imagined being in the wildlife parks and recreation. And so, you know, I oftentimes say shame on you universities that attract these athletes for, for athletics but don't give them their payment back, which is education. And so, again, that's a long, round-away answer to say, yes, I do think that student-athletes should be paid in college. Um, I think it should be a scale. There was, there was one, of the, um, one of the responses in the Black Sports Professional LinkedIn group that I'm in that it should be really based on performance, on the output of the school. Schools that have a smaller program will have a smaller piece of the pie. That's only fair. And you know what? Not just fair, that's business. That is business. Um, if you go to a large company, chances are you have an opportunity to make larger revenue as opposed to going to a smaller startup company. That is business. And so I do agree with that idea. Now, the perverse people are saying, well, will it, will it distract you from playing or from making your decisions? I will tell you right now, most of these kids are not making their decisions based on the academic program. And unfortunately, the academic program is not a major part of the student's life if the student chooses for it to be that way. There are systems set up in every school for the student to just kind of skate on by. But, but you better be at practice every day on time. So, yes, they should get paid. Should the restructure happen for the NFL and the NBA? Yes, there should be a restructure, but not in the way that the owners want the restructure to happen. Um, you know, the big argument with the NFL is show us the books. If you tell us a $7 billion, that's what the B, $7 billion industry is losing money, if you're telling us this, that they're losing money, then you need to show us so. Show us that you're losing money. And then we'll talk about dividing the pie differently. And so, you know, m most didn't want to show the book. The other thing that I will tell you, as, as a person who really focuses on performance, whether it's individual performance, a team or organization performance, I would, and I've said this before on, on another show, I'd be very interested to, to see the inefficiencies that no doubt are occurring 
in these organizations. Because before, if I was an NBA athlete or NFL you know, athlete, before I would allow that pie, me to get less of that piece of pie, and owners to get more, you would have to show me that you are operating at an optimal level. That there, are, there's no waste and no inefficiency before I give you more, and that's just fair. That's just fair business. You know, why would I give you more money to throw away? I'm going to keep the money, but I'm going to watch you throw the money away. That's just absolutely not going to happen. And I think there is a very large part of the way money is spent on teams that other sides may not understand. Doesn't make it right or wrong. But you may look at a portion of of the spending and say, "Oh, that's frivolous." And some of it could be, maybe some of it's not. And, but it does require communication and collaboration, and that's what we're not seeing in both the NFL and the CBA. In the NFL, they are supposedly very, very close to a collective bargaining agreement. Interesting, we're we're hearing sometime this week there should be some level of a deal. You know, everybody's worried um, about there being no NFL season. I said this on the midweek report last week that supposedly the idea of an eight-game season has been tossed around. I sure hope that they don't do that. If they do a revised season, I hope they do 12 games, not eight. Eight is just far too short to then head into a playoff that has almost, if you go all the if you go all the way to the Super Bowl, and you're playing close to the same number that you played in the regular season, which is asinine to me. So I hope if they do have a shortened season this season, I hope it's a 12-game season. I have heard rumblings that the 18-game uh, bargaining chip is off the table. So we will, so when that agreement comes out, supposedly we will not see the 18-game schedule. Now, however, the big, big uproar has been with the retired players. Because the retired players are saying, well, I, I think that's beautiful that you believe you're about to finalize your new collective bargaining agreement, but don't forget about us. Uh, we still have a lawsuit pending, and you have to make your agreement also cater to us. And by the way, you've not really been including the retired players in the negotiation. And I will tell you, retired players have a very, very valid argument. And they have a lawsuit that was that they filed. Their lawsuit was enjoined. I talked about this in a prior show. Was enjoined to be able to be considered in all of the grievances um, that that are now being legally considered. So, if in a negotiation process, which is what the courts would prefer, that the, that all of the parties just come up with an agreement on their own. If through that process, if through that process, um, the retired players are not considered, then I think the, re- the retired players have a point. The collective bargaining or, or the lockout should still remain. There should be no agreement until the until a negotiation with the retired players for their and I've said this before. I'll say it again. Earned with the capital E A R N E D. Their earned benefits are decided, that's very, very important for people to know. I went back and forth with with a man on Twitter uh, yesterday, and I've, and I've gone back and forth with him before, all good, you know, not like Twitter beefing or anything of that nature. But, you know, we talked about, I talked about saying the fans should stay fans, and you should cheer for the sport and let the business side of the sport be the business side because most fans are uninformed. And so he's like, well, I'm not most fans. And I said, well, okay, I said most. I didn't say all. I'm not speaking in, in absolutes. But I think it's very it, – it's a tough pill for me to swallow to listen to fans say, well, they need to play. We need football. Well, you need football fans for your entertainment. That's what you're really, I don't, I don't know if you, you realize that's what you're saying. I want my entertainment. That's really what you're crying for. And and you are upset about the business side that you have no vote in. You're not at the CBA negotiating table, none of that. And so to assert your opinion uh, about, you know, I want to watch football, if you're going to open your mouth, 
okay, fans, if you're going to spend any of your energy, call your congressman. Tell your congressman you're tired of paying taxes that include monies that will go to retired players who the NFL is refusing to make the connection with their injuries. Tell them that. You want to use your voice? You want to have a voice, fans? That's where you have your voice. Tell congressmen, tell your senators, tell them you are tired of footing the bill for an industry that is turning their back on their employees and their former employees. Tell them that. That's where fans can make the absolute greatest impact. Tell them. Use your voice in that way. Don't use your voice to complain that your that your precious entertainment where where you pull out your beer and your hot wings, but you're not going to have those moments, okay? That argument falls on deaf ears on so many levels you wouldn't even begin to understand. Tell people you're tired of a system that's really turning their backs on injured players. It's the same when you know we sometimes turn our backs on our veterans. Same thing, exact same thing, exact same circumstance. And that was one of the things, just having a a, a uncomfortable, unusual segue, if I can can have that for a moment. One of the things that I talked about, um, about Casey Anthony. So I am going to bring up Casey Anthony for a moment. So Casey Anthony trial happens, and she's up for all these charges. As many of you know, her little two-year-old daughter, Kaylee, um, died, and she was, you know, she said that Kaylee accidentally drowned, and then she was kind of covering that up. She panicked. She gave the police all kinds of wrong information, and you know it just kind of led to a wild goose chase. People really didn't know what to understand anymore about the circumstance. It was really ugly, uh, to say the least. It was just ugly. The trial that was three years ago. The trial was up. Many of you know Casey Anthony, not guilty on all of. The, I mean, all she was found guilty of four counts of a misdemeanor. The judge in sentencing gave her the maximum of one year for each count, so that's four years, to be served consecutively. However, she had been serving as she was awaiting trial all this time, so you get credit. That's our justice system. That's our penal system, everybody. And so when they did the calculation, the judge was like, okay, let me go into my quarters and figure out when is your release date, how much more time that you have to serve. He should have said, if any, because it was really close. So he comes back, and wouldn't you know, because she was a very very good person in jail, and so she got some credit for for good behavior and all those things. Wouldn't you know that she had like a a week more to serve? I think she got out uh, yesterday. People were outraged and whatnot, and I mean, even my own mother, I talked to her. I mean, and she was just going on and on. And I told my mother the same thing that I started talking about on, on Facebook, and I, can't, I don't know if I talked about this on the midweek report or not, so forgive me if I have uh, 6 a.m. amnesia. But, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Kaylee, who's a two-year-old that will remain a two-year-old in our minds because that's all that we know over to her untimely death. But that is one child. If we knew the amount of children in every city that are homeless, the amount of children that are abused, uh, the amount of spouses that are abused, um, the amount of illiterate children that are making it through our educational system, if we added up all of those injustices, I venture to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I may sound terrible when I say this, but that's just one circumstance. And But there are so many. And I talked about this on Facebook. The media drove past, they literally drove past probably child homelessness, uh, mental illness, living on the street. All of these things they drove past on their way to cover a trial about one circumstance. Instead of showing the world and the public while the cameras are on, show them what's really happening. Show them how they can make a difference. Show people that, look, we've got folks living 
on the street. So instead of you wasting your breath about a system you cannot change, the public opinion cannot change the Casey Anthony verdict. Only 12 people had that opportunity. That's it. We may look up and just be shocked, stunned, and on everything else, but you cannot change it. But today, you can go out and help your homeless problem. Today, you can go out and make equality in business happen. Today, you can do that. You have that opportunity, that ability. Today, you can do it. But, again, we get so wrapped up in the reality of somebody else's life, we forget we have an opportunity to to impact our own and our community around us. And so I was, again, I mean, there was so much media coverage around, and I just could not believe that all the other um, social ills they were turning a, a, a blind eye to so they could cover this story that nobody could really impact. Uh, but, you know, that is media, and I have been fortunate in spots and circumstances to be a part of media and be one of one of them. And I'm always the person that's covering the things that other people aren't covering. I mean, even when, you know, when the the press conference happened in D.C., our our Tebow and Tebow Productions cameras were one of five cameras. We were the only minorities in the group, only women in the group. And so, you know, it's one of those you go, wow, this is really – eye-opening to understand exactly how this circumstance occurs. So we got to you know we have to start showing and requiring that we are that we see through media's eyes what's really out there, but you also as an audience member have to be savvy enough and grow savvy enough to say the world is bigger than this box, right? So when televisions first came out, not that I was around for that, but when televisions first came out, some of what they called the older people um, would always say, you know, life doesn't happen in a box. You know, there's so much more outside of this box. Unfortunately, you don't hear that sentiment enough when you're hearing, um, let's say, a parent or, or a grandparent reflect back to their child. Life does not happen in a PSP. It's not happening in a Game Boy. It does not happen in a control system. That's not life. That is entertainment, and entertainment is a part of life. So I'm not trying to tell you no television because then you couldn't watch the Jennifer Tebow show. <laughs> but I am telling you, I am absolutely telling you that life happens beyond the box. So you've got to be willing, you've got to be willing to jump up and say, I'm going to learn outside of that, which means I'm going to interact with people outside of this box. I'm going to participate in things like social media and whatnot that I can learn from other people. I'm going to look outside of that box. And so I encourage you all to do that. I didn't mean for this to be a motivational segment, but that's what it became. So how about that on the Jennifer Tebow show? Last thing I want to talk about before I just give you some quick updates on me is politics really quickly. Oh, my gosh. So two things. One is just shocking. I just didn't think it was possible. As Michelle Bachman, I saw a headline that says she was Sarah Palin 2.0. And, I mean, of all, I'm just going to say this. You know, and I never necessarily tell people that I'm a Democrat or Republican because I vote for the person that I believe will get the job done, which means I'm really looking at the candidates and listening to what they have to say. And I'm asking them questions, and I'm involved in the process. So this prior election with Sarah Palin, I will share my my thoughts, and some would argue, oh, no. Don't do it. It's from a branding standpoint. As a woman, don't say what you want to say about Sarah Palin. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say what I want to say about Sarah Palin. Um, I was disappointed to see a person in that position um, 
receive the media that she receives, and that's part of it. I think I, mean, I do think that the media was hard on Sarah Palin, but I think she gave them tons of material, tons and tons and tons of material. Now, do I think that people are coachable? Yes. So I do blame the Republican Party for not coaching her in a better way and preparing her for the wolves. And when you get into a race and you are the vice presidential candidate for the Republican ticket, you bat through jumping into the wolves. So I do blame them for not preparing her for that. But, again, she gave them tons and tons and tons and tons of material to the point that at the time my seven – about seven-year-old said, Mommy, she's not very smart. And I thought, oh, God. If a seven-year-old can look at a debate, which is what my daughter did, can look at a debate and come to that conclusion, she might have even been six at the time, and come to that conclusion, that's pretty scary. That's pretty scary. So I was disappointed as a woman that that was our example. At the time, if you remember, our two women examples in higher up in politics was Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin. Hillary Clinton was running her campaign. I've often said this, which was her mistake. She was running her campaign like a man. Okay, and I can go into I can go into that in future broadcasts. But she didn't. I don't think she ran her race in a way that people would expect from a Hillary Clinton who had this unique perspective. And because that happened, then at that stage of the game, I think it was um, I think it was a tough pill for people to swallow from from Hillary. It was just too hard. It was just too much. I think she could have had a better shot at and um, at the presidency if she would have if her strategy would have been different. But um, and I'm not going to go into what I think was the Republican strategy for Sarah Palin. But it was just, it was a losing battle by the time she got into the race, and it just was a bad situation. So, Michelle Bachman, Sarah Palin 2.0, oh, the God, she is giving so much material this early in the race. It's just very, very sad. And unfortunately, those are the big examples that people are going to remember, thanks to media, uh, about women in politics. And that's a shame because there are so many great women that have been in politics and made such a huge impact. It is really a shame that we've got this one that is, you know, making this kind of impact and has become political fodder. So, Michelle, get it together. Make us all look good. I'm not saying I would necessarily vote for you, but please, you are representing women. All right, so on the flip side of the coin, and I'm flipping every sense of the imagination, we have got... Uh, President Barack Obama, who, as many of you know, is of course going is is going to be seeking re-election. Now, the strategy that I'm hearing about is very interesting, and I want to make sure that I point this out to everyone that I talk to about the Republican strategy uh, for the President Obama supporters. Their strategy. So I continue to hear from multiple sources their strategy is to divide and conquer. We're going to separate the the Obama supporters from their ideas of why they think he should be president. Now, interesting enough, I heard directly from a senior Republican uh, congressperson who shall remain nameless, and he talked about um, the fact that Obama supporters have this undying commitment to him and it has nothing to do with his politics. And I thought to myself, well, gee, that's really a bold statement. Do you really believe that? Do you think, you really think in your heart of hearts people are supporting a man that has shown no promise, no political promise, has just been horrible? Do you really believe that? Because... In the reverse, that's basically calling Obama supporters stupid. So I will tell you that I think it's a bad strategy. I think it's a strategy that is going to backfire for the Republican Party to be able to um, to just take that stance to separate. 
why don't you talk about the quality of your candidate? Don't worry about trying to discount and discredit uh, President Barack Obama. Talk about your candidate. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. The person that's getting a lot of highlight is Michelle Bachman. Yeah, I see why you're interested in in taking down President Barack Obama because what you've got from highlight right now is just a hodgepodge of mess. Well, that's not that's not the Democrats' fault because your candidates aren't together, Republican Party. I'll just say that that's not their fault. It doesn't mean you retaliate in that way. What your grandmother say? It's always easier to bring somebody down than to, than than to, you know bring yourself up. And so I'm seeing what I think is the oldest trick in the book from the Republican Party, and I do expect more from the Republican Party. Um, it hurts politics. It hurts government when these kinds of strategies are employed. And again, for Obama supporters, I want you to understand that when when this strategy is employed, when you start having these conversations with Republicans and they're trying to separate you from your support from Barack Obama, do not let them say, well, you don't understand his politics, if in fact you do. Because that's saying you're stupid. You're stupid. You're just following him because he is a black president or whatever other ideas that you know people may come up with um, of why you support President Barack Obama. Um, you know, I support his ideas of change, and I know that change is not easy. Hey, growing pains are painful. That's why the word pain is in there. And that's what we are experiencing as a country and, and as a nation um, and as, as a world. Um, I talked about this before, and I'll say this quickly. You know, economists are saying we've got to have job creation, which means folks can't just sit on their duff and expect one man to make that level of difference. That one man's job is to lead and inspire the nation to move toward change. So don't be fooled. I don't care what phenomenal Republican candidate could come up, if they were elected, that would be their exact same responsibility. One man or woman can lead and inspire, but they've got to motivate the rest of us to take action. We've got to move from being simply consumers to creators that we begin to grow beyond the space that we're in. We can't just keep consuming, chomping up like Pac-Man or Miss Pac-Man. can't keep chomping up and consuming without giving back into society. So that's, that's a very important concept, and I'll talk more about it. Gosh, this time goes so terribly fast. Okay, so to give you some updates, let's see. I'm going to look at how much time I have. I have like two minutes and seven seconds left. All right, so to give you an update on me, I have um, recently launched the promotional stuff for a, an upcoming book, youarewhatyoutweet.com. I'm going to spell that for you. You, like the letter U, are, spelled correctly, what, spelled correctly, you, letter U, tweet, T-W-E-C.com. So U A R E. W-H-A-T-U-T-W-E-E-T dot com. All right. Sounds much more complex than it really is, but you are what you tweet dot com. It is a book that focuses on personal branding and leveraging social media to get to make your brand global and recognizable. Really excited about the project because I think if you read the book, and you understand the process it takes to be able to be in good physical and social condition. Nine seconds to be in good physical and social condition to brand yourself socially. But then you're going to be ready to tackle the world because it forces you to go through this mental process of who I, who am I, who is my audience, what am I trying to accomplish. All of those things really happen as you go through and prepare yourself to brand yourself. Properly, and I talk about the ups and downs of of social media, when to use them, when not to use them, all that good stuff. So there is a website, youarewhatyoutweet.com. If you go to 
my uh, my YouTube channel, you'll see some of the promotional stuff out there as well. So I'm really excited about that. Also, shout out to North Texas Lead Organization. It's an organization that is designed. LEAD stands for Leaders and Executives Advocating Diversity, an organization that's designed to, to unearth, attract, and reflect uh, great diverse talent to North Texas organizations that are equally interested in acquiring, implementing um, diverse, awesome talent in their organizations. So just a shout-out to Gina Bivens and company at North Texas LEAD, as well as to the Dallas Black you guys, it's been great. It's been real. I hate that I have to go, but I do. Um, I will see you guys next time. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.